Uh, big thank you to all you folks who came out to yesterday's campus work day. Um, how many of you guys were here yesterday doing that stuff? Yeah. Come on, you can raise your hands. It's okay. No, it, it was an awesome day, a great day of just getting some stuff done and enjoying each other's company while we do it. A little sweat, a little sweat equity in the building. Thank you for, to the facilities team for coordinating that. It was awesome. Honestly, we got too much stuff done to mention all the things, but one thing which was really fun was up in 210, which is the room upstairs, kind of up by the youth room. Steve Wally was ripping paneling off that, off that wall. And um, as we were ripping, as he was ripping the paneling off the wall, it revealed a mural that had been painted back in 1974. I know. And the names of the ladies who painted it were on the wall, and they signed it and everything. So it was, uh, it was Kathleen Lewis, Judy Olson, and Jane Bleckham. That we <laughs> so anyway, it was we have some, if if you, if you have some time later on today, go up there and take a look at it and um, yeah, really fun to kind of a time capsule secret passageways in the church. We won't say what those are because they're secret. Um, anyway, that's that's also very very fun. Also wanted to welcome home Katie Stinton. Where's Katie at? Katie's right here, back from Zambia. Back from Zambia. And heading out to Florida this next week, and then off to, can we say where it is? Yeah, to Madagascar eventually. So the lemurs need Jesus, right? And they've got to move it, move it, you know? So um, she's going to, <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be lemurs. I'm just saying, um, okay, there we go. All right. Um, hey, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 this summer we were taking the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians and Colossians have this great line in them that we are to admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so we've been taking that to heart this summer, taking a look at psalms, which would be these Old Testament psalms, hymns, Christ hymns, these hymns to Christ. We looked at Colossians 1. Connor Haas came and looked at, uh, at the, the book of, of uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, where it talks about this, this hymn. But, but today we want to end this, this time. We're going to be looking, as we move into the fall, we're going to do some kickoff stuff in the next couple of weeks. But ending our time, we wanted to look at another psalm, Psalm 139. Psalm 139. It's one of the most well-known and well-quoted psalms, probably right next to Psalm 23. We looked at Psalm 23 the last three weeks I've been here. And, uh, but Psalm 139 is, is really a special psalm, something that probably you've heard as, as, uh, as we had it read this morning, and probably you recognize it, it resonates with us, there's so many great things in there. One of the reasons why it's so well known and so well loved is it, it kind of hits a, a lot of areas, but one of the things is it gives us a sense of what the ancient people in the ancient world, the ancient Jewish Hebrews, what they thought about God, what was God like? Not only what was he like, but as we today, we ask the question, what is God like? And there's so much in Psalm 139, and this idea that among theologians, the discussion of what God is like is typically a discussion about what we call the attributes of God, and this is where we go like geek mode and theology, and I, and I, I taught Bible and theology at Biola University, I teach New Testament now at Fuller Theological Seminary, but teaching these classes, you talk about what are the attributes of God, theology one, and we can all, you know, make our brows furrow and talk about theology, and, and what's one of the things that people love about Psalm 139, there's the, 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 the most meaty stanzas 
verses of Psalm 139 shed light on these attributes of God. And I just want to hit a couple of these attributes as we go through. And maybe you've heard these, these big words before. Um, but, and I don't want to, we, we might begin with theology, but we don't want to end with theology. But where we begin, like if you look at verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4 is really about how God knows everything, that he is omniscient, omniscient, all-knowing. Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together, this idea that God knows everything. He knows everything that is knowable. Like even you, probably, you don't even know. How, if you could count, how many times have you sat down and stood up just today? Like what time is it? It's like, it's about 11 o'clock, 11 a.m. Do you, do you know how many times you've gotten up and sat down today? Could you count that out? God knows. God knows. He knew yesterday, he knew the day before, he knows all things that are knowable. He is omniscient. As you keep going into verse 7, that God is not only knows everything, but he, this attribute that he is omnipresent, he's unlimited in relationship to space and time, that God is present at every point in our world and space. Look at verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. This idea that God is everywhere, that he, is not, he has no limitations in relation to what he knows, but he also has no relationship to space. And finally, that God is omnipotent. Look at verse, six, uh, verse 13. Verse 13, this third stanza talks about if, if, if the word know, you know all these things, and you are all these places, and now it's about what God does. In verse 13, you made, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are all your works, that God is all-powerful, and that he exercises his power in relationship to his will. This is all good theology, right? This idea that God is omniscient, God is omnipresent, God is omnipotent, that his, his creative and formative power to bring things into existence is unrivaled, it's unlimited. And in light of what Psalm 139 says about God, that God knows everything, that he's present at every space, every place and space, and that God wields a power that we only see a fraction of. What I want to do is I, I want to show you a, a brief video about the Hubble Space Telescope. And I want us to imagine this idea of God is omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's, he's everywhere. And that he's omnipotent. That he has power, unmatched power, unlimited power. Let's take a look at this with those things in mind. Astronomers, in 1996, attempted to do something extraordinary. They pointed the Hubble Space Telescope into a part of the sky that seemed utterly empty, a patch devoid of any planets, stars, and galaxies. This area was close to the Big Dipper, a very familiar constellation, 
and the patch of sky was no bigger than a grain of sand held out at arm's length. This was a somewhat risky move by the scientists. After all, observing time on this telescope is in very high demand, and some questioned whether it would be wasted trying to look at nothing. There was a real risk that the image's return would be as black as the space at which it was being pointed. Nevertheless, they opened the telescope and slowly, over the course of ten full days, photons that had been traveling for over 13 billion years finally ended their journey on the detector of humanity's most powerful telescope. Their feeble signals collected almost one by one. When the telescope was finally closed and the images were processed, the light from over 3,000 galaxies had covered the detector producing one of the most profound and humbling images in all of human history. Every single spot, smear, and dot was an entire galaxy, and each one containing hundreds of billions of stars. Later, in 2004, they did it again, this time pointing the telescope towards an area near the constellation Orion. They opened the shutter for over 11 days and 400 complete orbits around the Earth using detectors with increased sensitivity and filters that allowed more light through than ever before. Over 10,000 galaxies appeared in what became known as the Ultra Deep Field, an image that represented the farthest we've ever seen into the universe. The photons from these galaxies left when the universe was only 500 million years old, and 13 billion years later, they end their long journey as a small blip on a telescope CCD. These galaxies, while standing absolutely still, are racing away from us, in some cases, faster than the speed of light. The space-time between us and everything else grows larger by the minute, pushing the galaxies in this image to a distance of over 47 billion light-years. And because of universal expansion, the farther something is away from us, the more its light is shifted toward the red and the faster it appears to be moving. Edwin Hubble himself discovered this by measuring the redshift of many galaxies, and it's a measure of not only speed, but distance as well. Recently, Hubble scientists put the icing on the cake. Using the measured redshifts of all the galaxies inside the image, they made a 3D model of the ultra-deep field. This is how it looks when we apply the distances of the galaxies in the most important image ever taken. there are over 100 billion galaxies in the universe. Simply saying that number doesn't really mean much to us because it doesn't provide any context. Our brains have no way to accurately put that in any meaningful perspective. When we look at this image, however, and think about the context of how it was made and really understand what it means, we instantly gain the perspective and cannot help but be forever changed by it. We pointed the most powerful telescope ever built by human beings at absolutely nothing, for no other reason than because we were curious, and discovered that we occupy a very tiny place in the heavens. Sometimes the numbers, there's a lot of big words in that, and uh, red shifts and things like that, but when you think about the vastness of our universe, the thousands of galaxies we had no idea existed, that we pointed a telescope at what we thought was nothing. 
and we found that there, is, there are things untold. There's galaxies and stars and a universe that we have nothing, we know nothing really about. And these attributes, these three attributes in Psalm 139, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, affirm that God knows those galaxies, those stars, those planets, the space between them and us He knows and is in. And everything there is to know about them, that God is present even in the deepest reaches of space, and that God is the powerful creator in all the universe, whether it's currently seen or unseen at this time. I mean, the sheer size is, is mind-blowing, a hundred billion galaxies. And our psalmist says as much in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is too high, how can I attain it? And also in verse 17, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God, how vast the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand, as Connor mentioned. And certainly, the vastness of our world and our universe has led many thoughtful people, including you all, to consider the size and the power of the sheer amount that to be known about it. And I suppose that this idea of the, you take the, the, the attributes of God juxtaposed against the phenomena that we saw in that Hubble Deep, the ultra deep field, and it, it's just huge. We think about that, and it moves us to worship and reflection. I think the interesting thing is that, and we think about theology and omnipresence and omnipotence and omniscience, and those are awesome things, but what's, I think what's really interesting is that the Psalms, when we talk about let, speak to each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and we think about this idea that we're admonishing each other with the psalms, that the psalmist, this is going to sound weird, but the psalmist is not interested in theology. The psalmist is not just interesting, interested in talk about God. What the psalmist is interested in is the experience of God in his life. It's not just talking about God, like there's plenty of things that we could say. I mean, and the two go hand in hand, they, do they not? But the psalmist is not interested in mere theology and just parroting out words like omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence. The, the psalmist is interested in having an experience of that God in his life. And it, the psalms challenge us to move away from simply the head knowledge about God into the idea that God is present, not just that, the God, that God is present, that we would say like the psalmist says, you are with me. That we move from theology to what we would call spirituality and that any, any theology ought to serve not just theology itself. When we think about God, what we think about God is important to us, but it, it ought to move us into the point and the idea that we are, we are made to experience Him. We probably could all note people that we know of that have a lot of theological knowledge. I spent a lot of time in my life like learning stuff. But at the end of the day, if that does not serve a greater purpose of moving me closer to God, of an experience of God in my life, then what have I done? And so as we come to our Bible, especially as we come to the Psalms, we think about when, when the Apostle Paul says admonish each other, speak to each other in Psalms, it's not just let's talk theology, although that's awesome, we can geek out, I love to geek out, let's do that. But it ought to serve a deeper experience 
of who God is. When we think about this in the psalmist, let's look at how the psalmist moves from this idea of theology to the idea of spirituality, of experience of God in, one, in, in verse 1, 1 through 4, that he, goes, he moves from this idea that God knows everything to that omniscience turns into intimacy. God knows everything to, becomes God knows everything about me. Look at verse 1. Oh Lord, it's not you have searched the galaxies, you have searched me. You've known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, you're acquainted with all my ways even before a word is on my tongue. You know it. It's one thing to say God knows everything. The deepest galaxy, who built this building, who painted that mural up on the walls. God knew that before Steve ripped the paneling off, right? Okay? Like, what's the molecular composition of this podium? Like, God knows that. God knows that, and he could rattle it off. The future of the stock market, the housing industry. It's one thing to say that God knows everything, but it's another thing to say God knows everything about me. And even yet, it's even another thing to say, not just God knows everything, God knows everything about me, but then to take one step further and say, you know everything about me. To make that a prayer, not just a statement, not just a theological statement, but an intimate prayer. You know everything about me. And I would even, I would imagine that all of us are at one, some of those, like, maybe you're more comfortable saying, God knows everything. Like, that's a, that's a nice statement. That's a good, accurate theological statement. That's great. But if then you go and you say, to take a step further and say, maybe you're at a point where you're able to say, God knows everything about me, that you're making it more personal. But what we want to do, what we want to do here is not just say the right things about God. That's good, and we're going to do that, right? We're, we're going to say the right things about God. We're going to understand who he is, and then we're going to try to make it personal, but then we want to make it intimate. We, I want you to go home and say the words, God, you are with me. You know everything about me. That, that's not just something we do in this room. That's something we do in our homes. That's intimacy. That it's not just theological knowledge. It's intimacy. And the Psalms move us from just knowledge to intimacy. And we look at Psalm 139 and the psalmist, and that is what the psalmist is doing. God knows everything. God knows everything about me. You know everything about me. Do you see the progression? And isn't that the progression of salvation? That's the progression of salvation, that at some point you're like, okay, that's true, and then you're like, well, that's true about me, and then you're like, oh no, God is here and with me, and Jesus loves me, and not just Jesus loves me, but you love me, that you are, you're entering into relationship, that not just, it's not just a, a geek out conversation, it's an intimate conversation with God. That is the goal. Why are we here? We're here to worship and to move toward that. That's what we're doing here. And we, we, you know, we, we put this, we do all of this in service, and we ask, we pray at the beginning of every service, we pray, God, come and do your work. Even as I was, I was worshiping here, I was, I was joking with Connor, I'm like, the worship team is like the, the crazy uncle who stirs everybody up, and then the parents have to come up and like say something meaningful, right? Like that's, that's what they do. The worship team like stirs everybody up, and, then, and you feel, and that's the idea, but we want you to feel, we want you, and I, I'm sitting down there, and I'm like, God, do your work, do your work, because it's not just about coming and hearing the right stuff. 
that at the end of the day, we turn you loose with the Holy Spirit to go home and to have an intimate conversational relationship with Jesus every day, every hour, every minute. That's why we are here. Because God loves you and wants to be with you and wants to be in a conversational relationship with you every day. He's present he loves you. I'm, see, I'm getting pumped up. See, this is, this is why it's hard that I have to come up after all that. And like, because this is real. This is real. And isn't, there, isn't this what we, we have the deepest desire for, that someone would know us? Like maybe you're, you're visiting the church and you're like, it's hard to go to churches because it's easier to go to a place where I'm known. Like has anybody ever felt that before? Like you walk into a new place and you're like, ah, like I, not only do I not know people, but nobody knows who I am. I don't, nobody, I'm not known. And I think the thing is that one of the things with God is that we always know that God knows us. We are known. Even if we are alone and we feel alone, God knows us. You should never feel like, I mean, I can't say you should never feel, but there are times where we do, but the truth is God knows you. God knows you. All right. All right. It's, not just omni- it's not just omniscience that God knows, God knows about you. Uh, it's, it's also that God is present. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Where, where shall I flee from your presence? So the attribute is omnipresence. That's the theology. God is everywhere. But omnipresence moves to the idea of felt presence, that it's not just God is present, it's I feel his presence. It's true, God is everywhere, omnipresence, but I feel his presence. God is omnipresent, God is with me, you are with me. That's the progression again. The progression moves to the idea of intimacy. And again, Psalm 23, what's the central? The central message of Psalm 23 is you are with me. Of course, we're not always there. We don't always feel God's presence. Some days we sense it more than others. Other days we we spend the day maybe forgetful. But other days, we spend the day maybe with God. And maybe you've had an experience like this where you're like, you're waking up, you're like, look, I want to think, I want to even set a timer on my watch. Like every hour, it's gonna go off and I want to, I want to spend that time, I wanna recognize that Jesus is with me. Jesus, you are with me. Jesus, you are with me. And maybe you're walking through that day. There's a great spiritual classic called um, The Practicing the Presence of God with Brother Lawrence. And he was like, he called God the God of pots and pans because it was while he did dishes that he thought about God being present with him. This idea of every aspect of our life, every, doing everything with our life that we might imagine that God is with us. We're out here at the workday. God is with me. We're here in church. God is with me. I'm at work. I'm at my desk. God is with me. This idea that God is with me. And not just God is with me, you are with me. Just one little aside on prayer. I don't want to be a nitpicker about prayer because the rule with prayer is like, like don't put any obstacles in front of anybody when it comes to prayer. You just want people praying. Like, and you look at the Psalms, like there's all kinds of weird prayers going on in the Psalms, so I'm not going to correct anybody's prayers. But let me just say this. I was challenged a few years ago with this idea that when, um, when we pray for people, I was challenged with this, um, that sometimes we pray, God be with so-and-so. I'm going to pick on Bill, Bill Runyon. If I pray, God be with Bill, sometimes we pray that prayer. And, um, you know, I was challenged, okay, and I'm challenged by Psalm 139, like, okay, 
Bill's at his company and he's doing his thing and I'm praying God be with Bill. Is God with Bill? Yes, God is with Bill. Do I need to pray that God be with Bill? No, like God is with Bill. Like it, you could hear God say, well, prayer answered. Like I am right there with him. Like the idea is, what, what I'm praying is that, look, I want Bill, while he's at his desk, while he's at work, I want him to have a sense that God is with him. That's the prayer I want to pray. And so sometimes, like I would just say, and I've, I, I was challenged with this and I had to check myself over and over, but I've gotten into this habit where I'm not going to pray, God, be with this person. I'm going to pray, God, give Bill a sense of your presence. Now, I don't want to pray, God, be, don't, don't be with like God's like, I am with them. Trust me, like I will be there. I want, but I want, I want that, my prayer, God, give that person a sense that you are with them. Give them a rich sense of your presence. We recognize you're with this person. Give them a sense that you are with them. You guys hear me on this? I, look, I'm as guilty as anybody of this. I just, it's one of those things, like if we can make a tweak and we can think about that, but think about how that changes the way you're praying for them. Now it's not just God be with them, it's God awaken the spirit with them so that they recognize that you're present with them. Like what a rich prayer to pray for someone. This is the sort of thing, and I, th- I think that that's a wonderful prayer that as we pray for other people, I think the first thing we pray, whether even if somebody's sick, like the first thing that I, I feel like I want to pray for somebody, even if they're sick, is not just that they're healed, I would, because I do feel that God will do that sort of thing, but the idea is that if somebody is, is, is sick or alone or, or, or struggling, my first prayer is, God, give them a sense of your presence. That's the first thing, and I think that that's something, again, I don't want to, I'm not critiquing anyone's prayer, and I won't correct you ever. That's not my job, right? But I want us to, I want to challenge us. That's our prayer, that God would give people a sense of the presence. We know theologically God is there. What, we, what we're aiming for is this idea, a felt sense of God's presence. That's what the psalmist says. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. Verse 11, I think to me. Verse 11, like if you want to feel the feels, like this is it. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The valley of deep darkness, even the darkness is not dark to you. Like, aren't we, aren't we yearning for a, a person, a presence, like in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the struggle that we go through, that we would have a sense that God is walking right with us. He has us by the hand. Is that not, the, not relief from the darkness, but the, notice, the noticeable presence of God in my life while I walk through the darkness? Is that not greater than any other thing? That's our prayer. That's our prayer, that we would have a felt sense. The, the psalmist, look, you, the psalmist is like, look, omnipresence, great. You could talk about that all day long. What I want to know is, are you with me? Are you with me? And the, so the psalmist, again, not as concerned about theology, more concerned about the experience that we're having with God. So we've got omniscience becoming intimacy, omnipresence becoming the felt presence of God. 
And then this last one is you could go from omnipotence, that God is all-powerful, to the idea that not only is God all-powerful, he can, he can do all things, but he can also change my heart. Sometimes it feels like God moving a mountain is easier than changing my heart. Amen to that? Like, I don't know if anybody else in here is stubborn. I mean, I'll just talk to myself then, right? But the idea that God can do anything, but what I really need him to do is work in my heart, in my life. This is great. One of the more uncomfortable things about this psalm is how the psalmist moves from all this great, this grandiose language to like, I hate people who hate you. <laughs> like, that sounds a little off, doesn't it? Like, as we notice, it's, it, it, in verse 17, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God, how vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they're like the sand. You're like, this is great. And then, and then it's like, and then there's this turn in the psalm, like, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. And this idea, yeah, the, 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 the wicked, the, we, we want the wicked not to have their wicked ways done. We want, the, we want the righteous to prosper and the wicked to perish. And the psalmist is like, well, yeah, we're doing that. And then he just keeps going and he talks about this. You know, people who speak against you with malicious intent, verse 20, your enemies take your name in vain. And then he's like, I hate those who hate you, O Lord. I loathe those who rise up against you. And then he's like, in verse 22, he's like, I hate them with complete hatred. Have you ever gotten yourself worked up? Like even in prayer, and you're like, I hate that, I hate that, I, I hate them, I hate them, I hate them. But you feel the psalmist at the, the psalmist at the end, he like, it's like the spirit catches him. And even as he's like ramping up, I hate them with a complete hatred, and then he's like, oh, oh God, but search me. Search me and know my thoughts. Like this is not the best, this is not the best I've got. This hatred for other people, like search me and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This, this, in, this, this kind of knee jerk towards hatred, no God, 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 no, search me and know me. Show me if there's a grievous way, lead me in the everlasting way that God, yes, you can do all things, but change my heart. If my heart needs changing, if there is this hatred that's bubbling up, change my heart. We move from the idea of God knows everything to you know everything about me. The idea that you are present everywhere to you are present with me. And then also this idea that not only are you all-powerful, God, God is all-powerful, but no, you can change my heart. Two things as we kind of wrap this up. You know, one of the things about this psalm is that this, this is about experience of God. And sometimes we need good images to understand, like, how is it that God is indeed with me? And, and there's two images in, in the psalm that I think give us a sense of God's presence with us. And that, these two things, and they are um, face and hands. Face and hands. And you look at verse 5. Verse 5, this idea of hands. Let's talk about hands first. Um, in verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, um, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. 
And this, this word before, it says you've enclosed me in or you've hemmed me in. You've, it, hemmed in sounds really nice, but this idea of being enclosed, that verb, the, the verb there in Hebrew throughout the, the Old Testament, it's been puzzling to most commentators because it's usually used when you ha- it's usually used like when a, when a foreign army is surrounding a city, laying siege to the city, that it has hemmed the city in. And it says, God, your hand, you have enclosed me like you have laid siege to me. And then it says, so rarely is it used in a positive sense of surrounding to protect. This is the idea that God's hand has surrounded you to conquer. But the psalmist also says that you put your hand upon me. And this idea, laying your hand on someone is a sign of blessing. Laying your hand on the, on the head of someone to bless them, to show them your favor. And this idea that the psalmist is saying, you've searched me and known me. You know my rest, my activity, my thoughts, my path in life, my bedding down at night, my unformed thoughts. But he says, you have besieged me and blessed me. This idea, you've hemmed me and you've besieged me and you've blessed me. And again, I think back, this idea, this is the salvation process, isn't it? That God would come and kind of mercifully besiege us. Like, do you have some friends that you feel like, God, would you mercifully besiege them? Like maybe people who don't know Jesus, maybe this was your experience before you ever knew Jesus. That there was a sense in which God, like the hounds of heaven were coming for you. Everywhere you turned, it was like God was showing up in your life and you couldn't get away. He was besieging you. God, would you mercifully besiege? And the psalmist says, God, you have besieged me, but you've also blessed me. Reminds me of this, um, one of my favorite artists who's no longer with us is Rich Mullins. And um, in one of his songs, he talks about um, the love of God as being, experiencing the love of God is about being tossed about but lifted up. And the last line of his song is, in the reckless raging fury that they call the love of God. You have besieged me, but you have blessed me. And I think when we imagine God, like we, we, we allow him to do his work in our lives. And sometimes we sing songs like, like Refiner's Fire or something like this idea, like have your way in me. And you're like, I don't know if I can sing that song. Like I'm 50 years old. I got a family. Like don't, don't burn away anything. <laughs> like I'm trying, to, I'm trying to make it work here. Like don't refine me. Like let's just keep it going, God. <laughs> like let's not disrupt anything. But there's this idea that God is like, look, I'm going to besiege you and I'm going to make you into something that you are not yet already. I'm going to bless you in that process. I'm going to besiege you and I'm going to bless you. One of our values here is a congregation of growing people. We're not growing people unless we are allowing God to besiege us and bless us and make us into the people that he wants us to be. It's not comfortable. But that's, the psalmist has a great idea of that. So hands. God's hand is upon you. And sometimes that hand feels uncomfortable, and sometimes that hand feels comforting. But regardless, that hand is a hand of presence. Finally, not just hand, but face. Verse 7 says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And the word presence is actually the word face. Where can I flee from your face? 
to have the face of God turn toward you. You know, in the, in the blessing in Numbers, the ironic blessing, um, that we, we pray uh, that may the, the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you, this idea that God would face you. You'll often hear in the Psalms the plea, cause your face to shine upon us, like Psalm 80. For our psalmist, there is a sense of the face of God that he cannot escape it. And of course, the face of God, like the hand of God, is, is comforting, but it's also terrifying. When Moses goes up into heaven and, and, he, has, and he sees the, the unveiled backside of God, that the, he, God says, he, Moses says, hey, can I see your face? And God says, no. You can see me as I'm walking away. You can see the receding presence and that glory receding, but you cannot look at me in my face. It will kill you. So this idea of face, there's a comfort to it, but there's also this, this kind of devastation of being in the presence of God. It's awesome and terrible as well as comforting. The psalmist says, where can I flee from your face? If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and light around me will be night, what is that to you? Even darkness is not dark to you. You will not be overwhelmed by the darkness. The last thing about face. I was reminded this, um, of a story this week told by Dallas Willard in his book, Hearing God, which I've mentioned in here, of a young boy whose mother had expect, unexpectedly died. And it took its toll on the boy, as you can imagine, as well as the husband. And as he struggled to be adequately consoled, and he continued to be troubled, especially at night, um, the husband, the man, the, the father to the boy would come into the room uh, or the, at, that he, they would sleep in separate rooms, but then the, the son would come in and ask if he could sleep with the dad. And in the dark, he would ask, Dad, are you there? And the sure answer from his father would be, I am here. And the next question was, Dad, are you facing me? Is your face turned toward me now? And when at last the father would assure him that he was facing him, the boy could be at peace and was able to go to sleep. I think, I think we're all struggling to find someone to whom the darkness is not dark and in the dark would be facing us. It's our deepest longing that even when we're lost, even when we don't know where the next step is, that we would know that someone is with us and facing toward us. And the psalmist says, I know even in the darkest dark, you will light it up and the darkness will not be dark to you. It's one thing to know about God, to teach theology, whatever. It's another thing to know God, to experience Him. That's what we're about. That's what we want to see. That's what the Psalms teach us. When, when Paul says, admonish one another with Psalms, that's what the admonishment is. Let's pray. Father, we come, Father, we are so grateful for Psalm 139. We think 3,000 years ago, a faithful brother or sister or group penned this psalm and they penned it out of a rich experience of knowing you of knowing that you are present we ask father that 
as we read these words, we think these thoughts, that we join in the thoughts of the faithful all over this world and over the millennia, that we would indeed have that in relationship with you and that experience with you. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that if there is someone who is struggling to know that you are with them, that you this day, this week, would give them a clear sense of your presence in their life. And not just presence, but that you are facing toward them. That your hand has theirs, that you are guiding them. God, we just ask you to do your work among us and give us that sense that you are with us. Father, we love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.